This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. There is going to be no peace in the culture war. I completely concede that religious conservatives, social conservatives have lost the culture war. The other side is just bouncing the rubble, and it seems that they will not be satisfied until they grind my side into the dirt. Hello, and welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. So I've been exploring recently this idea that has become central among many Christian conservatives that America is a post-Christian society, and that within that post-Christianity, Christians, and particularly uh, white Christians of a conservative inclination, are becoming persecuted. They are the persecuted ones, and in certain ways, politics is no longer uh, available to them, that they are being written out of polite society, sort of the only thing that will not be tolerated is their views. I talked a bit about the demographics of this change, sort of what is underlying it in the Robert Jones episode, uh, Behind the Panic in White Christian America. And I do recommend listening to that. I think that's a pretty important – that's a pretty important context for this conversation. But this conversation was about what it feels like. And I think it's particularly important to listen to it if it makes no sense to you at all, right? If you hear the idea that that Christians are the persecuted ones, that um, American society is changing against them, and you think that just sounds like nonsense, like what could be a more privileged position than, than white and Christian? I think it's worth trying to understand what that perspective is, not necessarily agreeing with it, but understanding it because it is an increasingly powerful force in our politics. Nothing uh, is more powerful than a group that has at times at least felt itself to be in the majority or at least very protected by the majority losing that power. Um, you see dimensions of this in Donald Trump and the embrace of evangelicals uh, to Trump. You see this in the Saurabh Amari-David French fight about whether or not classically liberal pluralistic politics are actually still available to Christians. But the person I wanted to have on to talk about it is Rod Dreher. Um, Rod is a senior editor at The American Conservative. He's got a very uh, well-read blog over there. He's the author of a fascinating book a couple years ago called The Benedict Option, A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. And in that book, he is arguing for a strategy of withdrawal, that his, his argument is that society is so deeply turned against a deep practice of Christianity that the only thing to do is to recede is to create smaller, more hermetic communities in which a true Christian practice can be pursued such that there is still a live Christianity, not just a Christian identity, but 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 a live Christianity for when the culture turns again and there's room again to, to, to be a Christian. And so this is someone who, who really feels a sense of emergency, really feels a deep sense of persecution, but he's been a political writer and pundit for a long time and, and, and I think kind of bridges these worlds in an interesting way. So. 
I want to be clear, this is not a podcast where I'm trying to debate him out of these positions. It's something we talk a bit about here is one of the difficulties uh, uh, of being Christian in this way and in this culture is that you're not working off of a ground that can be debated, right? You're working off of a sense of divine revelation. But but trying to think about how that interacts with the broader culture I think is important. So I appreciate him being here. I think we cover a lot of interesting and very touchy and difficult and fundamental stuff, not just about um, his views, but the world, the media, um, how our politics works to bring out uh, the worst sometimes in each other or make us see the worst in each other, but also about why we prioritize what we do and when those priorities are moral and not moral. So I think there's a there's a, a, a lot here. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Rod Dreher. Rod Dreher, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Ezra. Let's start this way. So to my audience, every political speech ends with God bless America. There's never been a non-Christian president. Chick-fil-A is still an important purveyor of chicken sandwiches. What are the folks who look out at American society and see a dominant Christian culture missing? Well, I, I think what they're missing mostly is that the dominant Christian culture is very thin. And, uh, you know, one one phrase I use a lot, one concept I use a lot in my writing is moralistic therapeutic deism, uh, which is a concept uh, invented by the sociologist of religion, Christian Smith. He teaches at Notre Dame. He came up with this in around 2005 to describe the de facto religion of young Americans. And I think it's true of, of all Americans. And what it is, he says, is that it's a, an actual religious stance that's very shallow, very um, touchy-feely, People who believe in MTD, they, they believe God exists and they believe that the greatest thing that we have to do, the greatest moral demand made on us by God is to be nice. And they believe that personal happiness is the highest goal. Uh, achieving personal happiness and well-being is the highest goal of the religious life. Well, Christian Smith said that this is what overwhelmingly uh, most young Americans, uh, whether they're Christian, Jewish, Muslim, whatever, uh, what they believe about their religion. Frankly, I, I'm 52 years old. I was raised in a small conservative southern town in sort of the, you know, southern conservative middle class version of MTD. And so uh, all of that is just to say that when when people who take their faith seriously, uh, many of us, people like me look out, we see the uh, Christianity that's mostly a very weak and malleable civic religion that is rapidly losing its uh, its savor. You know, there's this, this uh, line in the Bible that says when talks about when the salt loses its savor, it's no good. And we think that's what's happening now. And that when we read in in the media about uh, this dominant uh, the Christianist, as our friend Andrew Sullivan talks about, when we see that Christianists are, are coming for, for everybody, it just makes no sense to us at all because we do feel uh, rather besieged and that we are losing ground rapidly. So is this a, an instance where the identity and the faith are different, that there's a, a lot more people with a Christian identity and America remains a country, certainly politically, with a Christian identity, but in a more literal or orthodox interpretation of the faith, there are actually quite few. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, look, there, I don't think there was ever a golden age in which everybody was totally on side and and obedient and living out the faith with uh, you know with a lot of enthusiasm. That said, uh, when I when I talk about America being post Christian, as I do in my my book, The Benedict Option, uh, what I mean is that the country no longer sees Christianity or more broadly Judeo-Christianity 
as the default. You know, my 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 late father, uh, he didn't go to church very often, and the church he didn't go to was the Methodist Church. You know, because this was a Christian country in his view. That's a wonderful line. Yeah, the church yeah, well, he didn't go well, to that, was there's a there's a line the I've always liked about um, there's an old joke about uh, Jews that we believe in what, about secular Jews that we believe in one God and he doesn't exist. Right, right. Well, that well, that's basically it. I remember back in my twenties, I'd lost my faith as a teenager and didn't believe in, in God at all. But I, I came back to faith as a Catholic in my early twenties, and when I, I told my dad. Dad, I, I'm thinking of converting to Catholicism. He was really upset ab- about it. Uh, and he said, but the Dreers have always been Methodist. As far as my dad knew, Jesus Christ was a Methodist uh, because for him, the faith was family tradition. And, and to him, it, the theology didn't matter at all. I was being disloyal to family tradition by leaving the Methodist church. And uh, I, I think um, you know the, that has really taught me a lot about how religion in America goes and how it was just assumed when I was growing up in the 70s that uh, that everybody, we were a Christian country and everybody was a Christian even if you didn't go to church. Well, those days are over now. They're clearly over, even though a lot of Christians, uh, ordinary Christians in the pews don't quite understand that. So I think Christianity is as much, if not more, an identity than it is a set of theological propositions that people aspire to, to live up to. And in fact, if I can end with this, uh, Christian Smith in his first work about moralistic therapeutic deism, he said that uh, this form of Christianity, or rather it's parasitic on the language and the concepts of Christianity and Christian institutions, and whatever might be said about it, it, it is not the kind of faith that will cause people to do things like put their lives on the line, as Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights uh, Movement did, to fight injustice. It's all about personal comfort and, and middle-class respectability. And there are a bunch of interesting threads in here, but it is moralistic therapeutic deism, right? I'm saying that right? Yeah, that's right. Is this sort of, is this instantiated, right, as we're having this conversation by Marion Williamson on the debate stage? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But in the Christian form, uh, I would say it's probably more of a Joel Osteen mm-hmm. sort of Christianity. And if I can criticize my own side here uh, more, it is the sort of thing I see in congregations like, um, uh, I don't know, Robert Jeffress at First Baptist Dallas, who I, I, I've met him before. I, I think he's very serious about his faith. And uh, I mean, I, I don't want to judge his personal piety, but uh, it really is a, a sort of, um, I don't know, a sort of Republican Party at prayer. But it's the Republican Party of yesterday, not the Republican Party uh, that that exists now or that is coming into, into, into view. And it you know, it, it bothers me as a Christian, even though I am a political and a religious conservative. Um, I don't, I don't like that. the 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 mission of the church is not completely consonant with either political party or any political party. Embedded in what you're saying is an idea that American life has become, in deep ways, either more offensive to or hostile to, like true Christian practice and faith, than it was, let's say, at random forty years ago. Tell me what are the pieces of it that feel that way to you? When when you look out, what is what is catching your eye? Because it's not everything that has changed, but 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 some things that have. Right. Well, the sexual revolution has been completely absorbed by the Christian churches, Catholic, Protestant, and otherwise. I think that is that is the main thing. Um, in my Benedict Option book, I I talked to 
about the historical genesis of where we are now, of, of having of the Christian faith having been completely denatured and made into something that's psychologically comforting to, to middle-class people today. And uh, I, I think it goes back to the late Middle Ages when Christians ceased believing that uh, the Christian faith said something about the world that we live in. I mean, this is a metaphysical argument. We may not want to get into it here, but uh, prior to, in the late Middle Ages and prior to then, Christians had believed that there was some sort of fundamental unity between the material world and the spiritual world. Well, that began to change in the high Middle Ages. And so over the, the past few centuries, we have moved more and more into a what you might call a mind-body split on Christianity, such that you get to the point where I was in a conversation a few years ago and overheard an evangelical woman, a conservative evangelical, who was complaining about how much Christians care about same-sex marriage. She said, when can we stop arguing about this and get back to preaching the gospel? Well, that is a perfect distillation of the sort of thing I'm talking about, where there is a, a separation between um, the material world and the spiritual world, such that this, this woman thought that the stuff that really mattered was what you had carried around in your head, not what you did with your body. So all of that is, is sort of a theoretical background to talk about why the sexual revolution and its triumph seems to be, to me, the greatest uh, challenge to uh, small o orthodox Christianity. And I'm talking about things from uh, the divorce culture all the way up to same-sex marriage and LGBT rights. So this to me is, is deep in the substance. And I want to just, for listeners coming along here, like I don't, I don't want to, we don't share in many ways enough premises to debate it. It's more that I want to understand it. So let me take the the side of that woman who is speaking to you. Something that I wonder about is in the fury, why the fury attaches to something like drag queen story hour, or story time, whatever it was, and not to extreme child poverty in this country. Why is the sexual revolution and its modern manifestations so much at the center of this feeling of alienation when there are plenty of other deep injustices and offenses and violations of what I understand to be the gospel or certainly um, all kinds of other forms of, of religious instruction that are out there that could be a little bit more coalitional. Right. Well, let me start by saying I, I think you're right that we in the church, and for your listeners who don't know me, I'm an Eastern Orthodox Christian. Uh, we're a very small church in the United States, but one of the, the oldest churches. Um, anyway, I, I think you're right that we fail to pay enough attention to other great injustices. You know, there are a number of deadly sins, to use the Catholic formulation. Uh, lust is one of them, pride is another, greed is another, and it's it's distressing and dismaying to see how uh, people on both the left of the church and on the right of the church pick and choose according to our political uh, orientations. That said, things like Drag Queen Story Hour, it's something so new, and it's come so quickly. I was reading in The the Atlantic um, this morning, uh, Jamie Kerchick had a piece up, you know, at, your listeners probably know he's, uh, he's a gay conservative writer, and uh, he was talking about how it doesn't bother him that there is a uh, an evangelical cake maker in Colorado who is not willing to overthrow 2,000 years of church teaching to bake a cake for a same-sex couple. I think I mean, it, was, it was kind of a funny line, but I, I think he really gets to something true there, that the, the change that has happened, that has overcome uh, our society in the West, by which I mean Europe and North America and Australia, 
on the subject of LGBT rights and LGBT in general, that has been massive, absolutely massive, and it's happened so quickly. So people are disoriented. The idea that you would go to your public library and there is a drag queen reading stories to children, it seems to be a condensed symbol of so much radical social change that is happening at an incredibly rapid rate. And I think that's why it is it is so powerful and it, and it so strikes such an emotional chord in people. I very much take the point that there's a newness to all of this. Um, certainly the sexual revolution has a newness to it. And yet I, I kind of want to stay on this question of why this and not that because it, it does seem to me that a lot of this debate ends up reflecting certain political divisions which I'm not sure exactly how much they map onto theological divisions. And I'm not sure how – I'm not sure if what we're seeing is a debate that is reflecting our politics or politics that is reflecting our sort of religious and, and, and ethical debates. And so you could imagine – I mean I could imagine turning on your blog in the morning and seeing pulled out stories of materialism, of ostentatious wealth uh, agglomeration, of – people who seem to have no concern for the poor they pass on the street or the workers who work for them. And it's just an endless parade of consumerism and this kind of hollowness of, of modern American capitalism. But I don't. I see tons of stuff about transgender transgendered people and, you know, uh, um, what's happening in the, the gay rights movement or whether or not, you know, people will be able to bake a cake or, or not for a same-sex couple. And I guess I, I guess I don't see why. I guess I don't see why that has become the kind of white hot center of this when it's not really about people in pain where some of these other things really are and it kind of secondarily seems that it's a it's a tough ground on which to stand if you if you want there there is it seems to me a, a kind of deep coalition to be built around poverty and materialism but this one it seems to have chosen an issue that almost by its nature is going to be very difficult and 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 it always puzzles me well i i can tell you the main thrust there or the main reason for th that this is such a neurologic point is religious liberty. Uh, I can remember back in the 2000s when we first started debating in this in our political culture in a serious way, gay rights and gay marriage rights. Um, Maggie Gallagher, uh, who as, as you'll remember was a, a crusader against LGBT marriage, um, she did this really interesting piece in the Weekly Standard um, called Banned in Boston. And she'd gone to this uh, legal conference where people who were in favor of, of uh, same-sex marriage and those who were opposed, all legal scholars, came together to talk about what was coming and what would be the uh, the, the fallout and the consequences of, of same-sex marriage. She did this really interesting interview with Kai Fellbloom, um, who was an openly lesbian Georgetown law professor and I think went on to become the head of the EEOC, where Fellbloom said, look, there is no middle ground here. You're either for gay marriage and again and against religious liberty when it conflicts with gay, gay rights claims, or you're not. And what was interesting about that is she herself is an Orthodox Jew, raised Orthodox Jewish, but she recognized that one side is going to have to give. And in, in our culture, both politically and law, and I think in the culture, the religious liberty side has been losing. And uh, I, I think that, you know, you find some religious conservatives who somehow, you know, they're the, like the, the Japanese soldier and hiding on the island, you know, who's not going to give up. They somehow think that LGBT rights and Obergefell are going to be 
overturn. Well, that's that's silly. I think every sensible religious conservative knows that same-sex marriage is here to stay. It's a popular thing now. And we're just trying to, to come up with some sort of modus vivendi uh, with, uh, within a, a, a political and cultural situation where gay rights have triumphed. But what we've seen is, and we continue to see, uh, a further encroachment on religious liberty in the name of gay rights. It's something as seemingly trivial as the cake baker in Colorado, but it's also more seriously going to come down on religious schools and whether uh, religious schools run by conservative religious people, you know, Catholics, uh, Orthodox Jews, whatever, whether they have the right to do what they do or whether it is um, it, it violates the Constitution. Um, just this morning, as we're talking, there was a piece in the New York Times uh, by a woman named Margaret Rinkel, where uh, she's criticizing the Catholic uh, Archbishop of Indianapolis, who was who saw to it that a Catholic school there in his archdiocese fired a teacher who was in a same-sex marriage. And uh, Margaret Rinkel said in the piece, she had this line, something like, you know, love will not win until everybody stands up for it. Well, to me, that's Orwellian. That's, it's saying that you, we will not stop until every single person is made to embrace what we believe to be true. I find that to be fundamentally illiberal. And it's something that is, it, it, there's never going to be any rest here. So this is the thing that um, there is going to be no peace in the culture war. I completely concede that religious conservatives, social conservatives have lost the culture war. The other side is just bouncing the rubble. And it seems that they will not be satisfied until they grind my side into the dirt. And that's why we look, I, I feel like we we can't afford to to turn a blind eye to what's happening. And I, to be honest with you, I, I wrote about this in the Benedict Option. I, I remember going to Capitol Hill in October of 2015. This was like, what, three or four months after Obergefell. And I had a, a meeting with some key Republican staffers from both sides of the Hill, all of whom were Christians. And I said to them, all right, look, you know, a Burgerfell has happened. It's here. We've lost this, this battle. So what are the, what's the Republican Party going to do to sort of shore up religious liberty protections? Total silence, Ezra. I mean, they, I, I couldn't believe it. They didn't even try to, to, to say anything. And I left that meeting thinking, we really are on our own, people like me, because the Republicans are given up. It's not on their agenda at all. They don't know how to talk about it. They're terrified of being called bigots. They're terrified of offending the donors. And um, you can maybe see why we feel, people like me, feel so besieged. So let, let's talk about the Margaret Rankle piece for a couple of minutes, because you sent it to me this morning, and it was helpful for me to re-read it and to read your response to it. So this is a piece. Um, she's a contributing opinion writer at The Times, and she is a Catholic, uh, I, I believe, from the article. And she is upset that the archdiocese uh, ultimately ordered a Catholic, I think it's a high school, to fire a teacher that the Catholic high school wanted to keep that the students, I guess, really liked and who's considered an exemplary teacher but is but is in a, in a same-sex marriage. And it – it seemed to me when I read that piece, it is fundamentally a banal piece of work. That it mm -hmm. it's somebody who's a more liberal Catholic than the than the um, Catholic uh, than the Vatican is, um, trying to push the religious movement she's in to liberalize on something that is important to her. And you read that piece, and you called it Orwellian and quoted Orwell, and you know it's bouncing the rubble. And meanwhile, the thing that actually happened was this guy got fired. 
Like he got fired. He doesn't have his job anymore. Right. And so there was something when I was reading these two things next to each other that I, I couldn't put it together exactly. Like I could understand the feeling that, well, here's Margaret Renkel using her, her Times op-ed page to push this idea. But of course, that's what happens on the Times op-ed page. And on the other side, the guy got fired. So what what feels to you so Orwellian here? What feels to you like you're so behind the eight ball? Yeah. Well, the aside from the fact that this sort of thing is happening more and more, that uh, religious schools are being challenged, even in their uh, in their ability uh, to run themselves and run their institutions uh, according to the teachings of the church. Whether you agree or disagree with the Catholic Church, I mean, the, it does teach that same-sex marriage is not permissible and it's a serious sin. That may not last much longer under Pope Francis, but that's where we are now. And um, the, the thing that alarmed me so much about this, uh, about, about this particular Margaret Wrinkle piece, which is pretty banal, to, to be honest, but it, it's her line about how love can't win until everybody stands up for love. It's that sort of thing that, that really, really electrifies me. And it also helps that I was reading this weekend in 1984 for the first time. And, but I, I began to see how dissent cannot be allowed. There can be no place where you can dissent uh, from the uh, from LGBT dogma or the what what most people in this society believe without being attacked, and uh, that's that's a thing that that worries me because as again it's fundamentally illiberal. Look, if if Andrew Sullivan and Jamie Kirchick were running this thing, I would be fine with it because both of them seem to me to be uh, gay men uh, who. Uh, respect the right of dissent and respect the, the importance of in a liberal society giving people the right to be wrong and to be wrong within their own institutions. People like Margaret Rankle, who I, I agree is probably Catholic, you know, they she has no grounds to stand on in Catholic teaching, and she's attacking her own, uh, attacking an archbishop for defending Catholic teaching. And yeah, you're right, the man lost his job. There are people who are are losing here. But then again, uh, the, the, the baker out in, in Colorado, he was going to lose his business. There have been uh, Christians who have lost their business businesses and their livelihoods because they've gotten on the wrong side, quote unquote, the wrong side of this issue. But, but that isn't, the, isn't that part of why – I mean I actually take your point going back to the interview you talked about Maggie Gallagher doing that you end up having these zero-sum conflicts a bit because there are places where somebody's going to lose. And so the question becomes like what are the what are the protection laws or what are the the the, the rules we're going to have throughout society? It isn't that you're asking for a world versus someone else asking for a world where there's pure liberty to to do what people want and live the way they want. I mean, in some worlds you lose your job as a high school teacher and in some worlds your bakery is endangered. Um, right. There's all we have to draw a line somewhere, right? And obviously, we have That's to draw true. lines around religious practice. And and you know, I'm a, I I will say that I think there's a lot of validity to some of the religious liberty concerns. So I'm not somebody who I think is all the way on one side of this. But we're always drawing a line somewhere. And and the reason I thought the Rangel piece was actually an interesting example is that it I think helps clarify too that the line is not always drawn against the religious. It's also I mean, one reason these things are a live issue in American life is for our whole history, they've been drawn um, not against people who are operating within the the, the larger um, heterosexual Christian culture, but often drawn against people who were 
had an alternative sexuality or for 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 the record an alternative religion or whatever i mean there's plenty of plenty of examples of atheists being discriminated against in this country too and so you end up in this in this kind of funny thing where it feels like dominance wasn't a problem for a long time, but but as it turns, then you get into this religious liberty question. But it's not about not having people lose; it's just about who's winning. Or am I missing that? Let me let me put it to you like this: um, there is a real theological and philosophical question about the status, the moral status of homosexuality and sexual desire in general. Um, we you have a lot of people who argue that. Uh, homosexuality is completely equivalent to race in terms of, of civil rights and things like that, that it's morally neutral and that to discriminate against gays and lesbians is the same thing as discriminating on, on race. Uh, I have found that to be the uh, absolutely overwhelmingly the position of in newsrooms. I can remember back in 2006 or so having an argument with a younger Catholic in the newsroom where I worked at the time. Uh, I was saying, why does our newspaper never give the other side of the gay marriage issue. Why are, we, why are we so engaged in advocacy journalism? And he said to me completely sincerely, he said, well, do you think that we should have given the Klan the other side during the civil rights uh, struggle? You know, as if the only reason you could be, uh, you could oppose same-sex marriage or even have a problem with it was bigotry. Now, in Catholic moral teaching, and that's the tradition I know, I don't really understand evangelicalism, but in Catholic moral teaching, sexual desire is not neutral. It has a meaning. It can be disordered or it can be rightly ordered, but it is not neutral. Race is neutral. And it, it's certainly true that during the, the segregation, segregationist period, there were Christians, uh, primarily fundamentalist uh, white people who in the South who argued that racial discrimination was biblically sound. I think they had no grounds on which to argue from a biblical point of view. Sexuality, whether heterosexual or homosexual, it's just not the case within the Christian framework. And mind you, this is, a, this is an argument that's taking place within the churches now. It's not the church versus the world. This is happening within the churches. But I, what I would ask you, uh, as someone who's on the other side of the issue, to understand is that Christians who take the Bible and the teachings of the church seriously and the tradition and the, and the binding aspect of the tradition on our, and on, of Scripture on what we believe, you know, we're not free to, to refute 2,000 years of understanding of, of Scripture and tradition. Uh, I know that is going to bring us and is bringing us into a dramatic clash with the modern world. But uh, I guess what I'm, again, what I want you to take away from this is it's not a simple matter of bigotry because sexuality, again, homo or hetero, is not morally neutral in the Christian tradition. So I want to take a moment and say that's a that's an important point. And so I just want to like give people a moment to absorb it, that I, I take what you're saying there, that if you hew to a more orthodox understanding of, of these questions, it isn't something that I can argue you out of. It isn't like I, – I actually think an interesting thing that happened in the, the gay marriage debate was when you begin to have these arguments popping up on National Review trying to explain why gay marriage would be bad in some technocratic sense, that it would hurt mm -hmm. straight marriages or you know something, GDP, <laughs> um, it, that, that was loss. Like it was already over at that point because it wasn't going to be. You couldn't argue that out in a technocratic way. It was built on some – it was built on a non-pluralistic understanding of – decency or morality or values, right? It, I, I, can't, I can't argue against your revelation, but it doesn't make that a good argument for um, 
like a policy argument. Um, right. But but I think that the place this turns back is that that's a pretty standard state of affairs. So I'm Jewish, and it's very clear in the teachings of the Old Testament that you should stone someone for working on the Sabbath or taking the Lord's name in vain or um, all kinds of other things. I remember that my my uh, bar mitzvah Torah portion, it was just like this list of things you could be killed for, <laughs> um, things that were abominations. And obviously, we're not allowed to do that correctly. Um, and so I think the question I have for you, a question I wonder about in the religious liberty debate, is what actually is your limiting principle? What 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 is the place where your religious liberty ends and my rights begin? Well, that that is a massive question and and a very important one, one that can't be settled uh, once and for all. I mean, I I would believe that uh, I take a pretty expansionist view of religious liberty, and that means allowing uh, religious institutions to do things that I find personally uh, abhorrent. For example, I think that Bob Jones, the Bob Jones case was wrongly decided, even though I think it's despicable. To refresh your your listeners' memory, Bob Jones' case uh, was a case in the early 1980s, I believe, uh, at the Supreme Court, in which the, um, the IRS wanted to take away the tax-exempt status of Bob Jones University, the fundamentalist university in, in uh, one of the Carolinas, because it had a policy at the time of forbidding um, uh, dating across racial lines. Now, I mean, these are hardcore old school fundamentalists. I think they were morally wrong and in fact abhorrent, but the, the Supreme Court decided that the, the state, the IRS, does have the right to remove tax exempt status if it wants to achieve certain policy goals. And uh, I, that really bothers me because even though I, I think they are very, very wrong, I believe in drawing a clear, bright line around religious practice within those institutions. Um, I myself would, uh, would feel uh, much uh, no sympathy at all for, uh, for religious groups that discriminate on the, on the basis of race. But um, homosexuality and transgenderism, as we've been talking, that is a really different uh, different situation because I think morally, the, as a moral phenomenon, it is different. I'm not, we're not going to argue that out here or, or settle anything here, but um, I believe that in a liberal society, which I do support, you know, classical liberal society, I believe that we have to provide uh, people with uh, maximal free speech protections and religious liberty protections. Um, in the matter of free speech, you know, you, the Supreme Court famously decided that you can't, free speech doesn't mean that you have the right to shout uh, fire in a crowded theater. Um, I think that at some point there is a limitation on religious liberty when it comes down to, say, female genital mutilation, which is a physical attack on, on someone's body. On the other hand, if we say FGM is wrong, then what do we say to Jewish people who circumcise? I believe that Jews should have the right to circumcise their children according to their tradition. So I have a problem there because I believe female genital mutilation is wrong, but I would also defend the right of Jews to do that. I I don't know what, ultimately where I would end up on this, where I would draw that line, but I think clearly in, in, a, in a society like ours where gay rights has won in most cases. There are, some, there are some battles still left to be fought, like around the Equality Act, that sort of thing. But in a society that is rapidly moving to full embrace of LGBT rights, uh, the idea that we need to protect uh, schools and churches and religious institutions, adoption agencies, I think is 
should be a no-brainer simply for the on on basic liberal grounds. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. So uh, a distinction you drew a minute ago that I think is important and worth exploring is a distinction between a judgment delivered on the basis of bigotry and a judgment delivered on the basis of religious practice. And something that intrudes on this debate is a lot of people look at what is actually being prioritized given the number of teachings that are at hand to be wielded. And wonder, I think reasonably, if religious practice isn't being used to justify bigotry. So to go back to the Renkel piece, uh, an argument she makes in the middle of that is that the Archdiocese, she writes, has apparently not directed Catholic school officials to fire teachers who practice birth control or divorce teachers who remarry without the benefit of a church annulment. In calling for the dismissal of teachers who fail to exemplify the teachings of the Catholic Church, the categories of people – here she's quoting someone else – the categories of people you need to fire would amount to a huge list. And so I think something in this debate is that there's a feeling that the centrality of sexuality and particularly the centrality of gay sexuality or transgendered sexuality or um, or, or, or life, it reflects something that isn't just practice. Because if it's just practice, then there would be a much more thoroughgoing set of strictures on what people could do and teach at a Catholic school or what people could do and be a member in good standing of, of a church. But the focus on just a couple kinds of um, violation, it, it, it seems to people maybe there's something else motivating that. There are a couple of things I can say there. First of all, this is a technical point, but a very important one. I, I, I did not realize this until a few years ago when I started interviewing uh, lawyers who litigate on behalf of religious liberty. But uh, here it is that... Um, Institutions that have certain teachings, uh, if they don't exercise those teachings and defend those teachings when they are challenged, the courts may decide in the future that, well, it didn't really mean that much to the school anyway or to this institution anyway. Therefore, 
uh, when the challenge is put forth, we're not going to side with the institution. So if these schools, if these religious organizations, if they're challenged on uh, same-sex issues or transgender issues, if they don't defend what they believe, uh, then they're likely to lose the right to run themselves, according to this teaching, permanently. Um, and I, I, I think that if this if someone got fired for using birth control, say at a Catholic school, and the school had known about you know, th that its employees were using birth control in contravention to Catholic teaching, and had known about it for all these years and never done anything, if that person sued in court, uh, chances are they would win because the institution had never defended it. So um, I remember being in a conversation with a lawyer in Philadelphia, a Catholic lawyer friend of mine, a guy who's really liberal, and he was upset, this was a couple of years ago, he was upset because uh, Archbishop Chaput of Philadelphia had ordered the firing of a, of a teacher, a lesbian teacher who was in a same-sex marriage from a Catholic school. And um, I, I said to the lawyer, you know how this works. You know that if, if they don't do this, then they've opened the floodgates and they'll never be able to stop it no matter what. And he said, well, okay, but I think for the, for the sake of compassion, the church should change should change its practice on this. That's a legitimate argument to have, but what this lawyer was doing was conceding the truth here, that if the church won't defend itself on this, it's it's given up its, its ability to ever defend itself successfully in court. So that's one thing. Secondly, um, sexual practice and sexual teaching, at least in Catholic understanding, uh, it's, it's not something that can be separated from the idea of what gender is. I mean, male and female, he created them. That's in Genesis. And Christian teaching takes that very seriously, that uh, gender is something that's written into our nature as physical beings. Also, Christian teaching prioritizes in many ways the family and sees the, the, the natural family as the cradle, so to speak, of life and of religious vocation, things like that. So anything that challenges the structure of the, the natural family and that challenges traditional sexual roles, gender roles, and I'm not talking about whether women can wear pants, anything like that. I'm talking something much more fundamental. That's going to run straight up against the foundation of the Christian understanding of what a human being is and what human nature is for. These are old ways of thinking about this. I, I, I grant you, we don't, in the contemporary world, we don't tend to see, to, to approach human beings and human behavior in, uh, in the world itself in those categories. But that is deeply, deeply written into the Catholic and the Orthodox tradition. And I would say, too, most likely in the, evangel to the evangelical tradition. So this is something you write about in the Benedict Option. And, and I actually want to draw it out a little bit more um, because I don't think people always say it forthrightly. Y your view is that there's sort of a hierarchy of violations of order and teaching and, 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 and sin, and that for various reasons, things relating to sexuality and gender are atop that structure in a way other things that people who maybe open up a Bible and pick out this ruling or that ruling that are more legalistic are not, that there's something about the idea of Christianity as an instantiated faith that puts these things in a different category, and thus there's a theological justification for their centrality in, in this debate. Um, do you want to just talk about that a bit? Yeah, and thank you for asking about that, because you know it is certainly the case that someone, a, a Christian, can be perfectly chaste and perfectly orthodox on sexuality and still go to hell for 
grinding the face of the poor or doing some other horrible, horrible sin. It's not like sexuality is the only thing that that Christianity is about. But it is the case because that sexuality is is more central to Christianity than uh, than many people think. In my book, I write about Sarah Rudin, who's a Quaker writer, who wrote a book called uh, Paul Among the People a few years ago, in which she talked about, uh, she defended St. Paul uh, against uh, others who who say that he was a misogynist, he was a bigot, he was this and that. She pointed out that in the world, uh, in the Greco-Roman world in which St. Paul preached, the sort of things that, that that bother us today about his teaching about sexual modesty and chastity, things like that, it was actually liberating because Greco-Roman culture was a culture of intense sexual exploitation of the poor and of women by the ruling class. Um, we don't live in that world anymore, but it's it's really interesting for people to think about where this sort of thing came from. Now, we can't, as a Christian, we can't look back on Paul's writings and say, oh, well, we don't live in the Greco-Roman world anymore, therefore we don't have to pay attention to this. That's not how it works. Nevertheless, the 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 point is, Paul came out of the Jewish tradition and, and talked about the sacredness of the body. Uh, when St. Paul said, he, he told Christians that if you join your body to a prostitute, you are joining the body of Christ to a prostitute. That sounds weird to modern uh, ears and to, certainly to modern non-Christian ears, but it shows how incredibly important what you did with your body, especially sexually, was to the early church. And um, as I said, that you know, the way we regard how we use our sexuality and how you know, what sexuality is for it goes very, very deep into understanding how we're supposed to live. It's deeply uh, grounded in Christian scripture. And it's just, it's incredible to think that that even among liberal Christians today, so much of that is being thrown away. You can't just throw it away like that. Recognizing this will be probably a, a bit of an obvious question, but something you talk about in that chapter is that there's a, a fundamental idea of gender complementarity that there are many things you can do um, in terms of sexual libertinism, but that don't affect this fundamental ordering of the world into of the human race into male and female. And of course, there there are a lot of people, um, not a majority, it's not even the people we tend to be talking about in these discussions, but who are just born intersex. And as somebody outside the Christian faith, I always wonder how that fits into that framework, what kind of challenge that does or does not pose to that. Yeah, let me, uh, let me give a little background to to what I believe you're asking. I, I talk about in, in that chapter, the Benedict Option, how, uh, why same-sex marriage was such a Rubicon for Christians. Uh, it could never have happened if heterosexuals had not completely absorbed the sexual revolution and turned the, the institution of marriage into something that it never was before. They turned it into something that was merely contractual and something that was there for the happiness of the people who were in, involved in the marriage. So I, I want to state clearly that you know, this is something, same-sex marriage is something that came about because of heterosexuality uh, and the way heterosexuals changed our, our views on marriage. That said, uh, in the book, I talk about how even the culture of divorce doesn't essentially challenge the model of male-female marriage, even though it hollows it out in many ways. Same-sex marriage does. So it was a fundamental change in 
in the ideal of, of what marriage is and what human beings are and what sex is for. That's why it was so radical. Um, on the matter of, of intersex people, that's a complicated question. I, I don't have the theological chops to figure out what that is supposed to mean, but I would say that we can't overturn an entire um, entire body of thought uh, of moral theology that has been developing and changing for 2,000 years. We can't overturn it all on the basis of a minuscule number of people who don't fall within within the cracks or that fall out, you know, that fall in the cracks, I should say, of of these categories. We should also remember, though, that we're dealing with human beings here. We're always dealing with human beings who were messy and imperfect. And I, I it, it does bother me uh, a lot that people on both the left and the right often make the the mistake. I'm guilty of this too, of believe or of arguing in abstractions and forgetting that we're talking about real human beings, whether it's the gay teacher in Indianapolis who has lost his job because of his same-sex marriage, or the photo wedding photographer in Arizona who can no longer practice her vocation because of this. But isn't the counter-argument to some of this that by the same token that it's a fair argument to say you don't order society based on a, a few people who don't fit sort of broad rules, that you also don't order society then based on a kind of non-verifiable view of the world that does not have room for the kind of complexity of what we now know to be true about modern society and people's impulses and the way they live. I mean, it, I take the religious liberty part of this, um, but it's coming out of, it's the descendant of, let's have a constitutional amendment against gay marriage. It's a descendant of a desire, and and it, it reflects a desire, right? I mean, what 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 Amari and other people are arguing for um, is a is a society that would have much deeper strictures on how people can live, and it seems to me there's a little bit of like a movement between, well, on the one hand, um, you know that challenge, you know, shouldn't have us um, upend two thousand years of, of 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 Christian thought, and on the other hand that. If you're sort of going to argue it out a little bit logically like that, then maybe that thought doesn't give us a very good sense of how to like order a modern society outside of the question of religious practice. Yeah, well, you know, your question makes me think about this, the more fundamental uh, debate that's going on now in, in liberal democracies is uh, what is the basis on which we can, we can live together and order, order our polity? I mean, think about it. How do you verify the claim that all men are created equal? Is that, uh, is that verifiable or is it axiomatic? I think it's axiomatic to liberal democracy, but it can't, it can't be verified. I, I think that one of the reasons that we're breaking up now in our, in our liberal democracies in Europe and in, in the U.S. is uh, the Alistair McIntyre point. You know, McIntyre was the, is a philosopher at Notre Dame who said the reason that, um, that we've reached a dead end and a political debate in our culture is because the Enlightenment project has failed because you, a lot of these things you can't justify on the basis of reason alone. And so political debate becomes mostly about the will to power. I think that that is the issue that a lot of us, whether we're on the right or the left, are not really facing is how can, in, in the even we live in a post-Christian society now where people don't take the broad view of what's uh, what the Bible says uh, as the basis for for our polity. We are a secular 
uh, world, but it, we always were secular in our constitutional framework. But now that most people have moved away from historic Christianity and we live in a much more pluralistic uh, and uh, unbelieving society, we're scrambling to figure out how do we properly order order this society. And uh, I, I think that from the religious conservative point of view, I'm not endorsing Saurabh Omari's point of view, even though I, I think he's mostly right, but I, I really have some serious problems with, with what his side is saying. I, I think that uh, it is a fair question about how what are the limiting principles from the left that the, in this post-Christian society, how far will they allow us to go? Will they allow our side to live with a certain sense of autonomy and, and self-control? Uh, what is the basis on which they are prepared to, to govern? I don't know that that's settled or will be if we'll be able to settle it uh, by reason alone. I mean, what, I'm interested to, know, interested to know what you think about that. So I have a couple of thoughts. So let me, I don't think we have ever governed on reason alone. And I think we're probably more reasoned than we were for most of human – I mean, certainly for most of human history, but even for the last you know couple hundred years of the post-Enlightenment period. I think it is a profound mistake to think that we govern by reason. And something you said I think is very important. I think it is really crucial to recognize when you are dealing with a question that cannot be answered by reference to facts or a study or an empirical question. So something I, I talk a lot about, um, you know, with my team when we're when we're looking at particular stories, is that there is a tendency in political life to want to translate questions that are ultimately about values into questions that are somehow resolvable by studies, and so we'll end up say talk. I think immigration is a great example of this. We end up having a lot of fake arguments about the effect of immigrants on the wages of native-born workers. And so then you kind of drill those down. You're like, well, what you're really talking about is there's a couple studies or one study that says, you know, high school, like like native-born workers with only a high school education or less than a high school education are hurt, but everybody else has helped. And so, you know, on net, we could just do a transfer and nobody really cares because nobody right. on either side right. is actually engaging the immigration debate for that reason. It's really a debate about what kind of country you want to be, what we owe people who don't live here, what the sort of moral status of citizenship is. And I can't answer those questions for you by pointing to a GDP study. And I can't answer those questions for you if I tell you 20 times a day that immigrants here, including undocumented immigrants, commit crimes at a lower rate and start businesses at a higher rate than native-born um, folks you're not going to change your view on immigration. It's not how it works. I think it is actually good to be more upfront about the fact that we have a lot of collisions over values and identity. Um, and to and one of the worst things we do, I think, is we dress them up in the language of technocracy. And by the way, I say that as somebody who I think is better than most at dressing things up in the language of technocracy. Um, <laughs> you, you, yeah, you are the you are one of the best at that. And I'm not saying that as a as a criticism. But 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 because I've been I was born in the darkness and molded by it, <laughs> to, to quote Bain, I try to be alert to when it's happening, and um, try to be alert to what we're actually arguing about when we're arguing about it. It's one reason I focus so much on identity on this podcast because I think a lot of what we think of as a debate about reason and policy is really a debate about identity and belonging. And so I think it's okay in the sense that it was always true. I don't think the thing you're pointing out is a change in whether or not we have somehow lost the ability to have a reasoned argument with each other. I think the thing you're pointing out is that there was a more singularly dominant culture which established a more common ground of value for better and quite often, in my view, for worse. 
and that uh-huh, as uh-huh. the dominance of that culture is changing, I mean, as we're becoming a more racially diverse or more religiously diverse country, it's very disorienting for it to be harder to say, well, somebody can settle this argument if only through power. And a lot of arguments were not settled by reason. They were settled through power. They were just done in a genteel way. Or in the case of the Civil War. Or through war, yes, of course. But I sort of mean in this post-war period that people look of as like the American golden political age. Like, for instance, from a lot of that period, we just suppressed civil rights debate in the Senate. Um, They just controlled either the Rules Committee in the House or the filibuster in the Senate. And that was it. You just didn't debate those things. It wasn't until, um, you know, really the 60s and the late 50s that you began to have a breakthrough in the power needed to actually bring those things to the floor. And then, of course, a big era of polarization begins to to develop momentum. And people look back on that and now they look back and say, oh, it's so terrible that our society is ordered into these polarized warring camps. But the thing that preceded it was suppression. It wasn't justice. Right. Well, you know, listening to you talk makes me think about why I'm so frustrated with our own profession, with journalism, on the question of religion and sexuality in general. But uh, there, in my experience in in newsrooms writing about this this issue, there is so little awareness among journalists as to how the the things they take as as natural and true and obviously true are really constructed within their own framework and they don't they don't uh, are, are not aware of how actually diverse the the people's views are and I, it goes back to what I was telling you about this argument I had at the Dallas Morning News with my colleague who's a good guy he didn't know anybody who was against same-sex marriage and assumed that everybody who was against same-sex marriages was around 2006 or so could only be redneck bigots and this was the sort of thing that was just general in in those circles. Um, in a similar way, I, I know I have friends who are really religiously conservative, who are living in a bubble where they really do think that uh, that gay marriage was something foisted on America by the elites, and if we just you know take our, take our country back, that's going to be overturned. That's crazy too. But this is this is what living in the bubble does for you. The people who believe that, though, this have this fantasy about overturning Obergefell, they have no power in this country. You know, the people who believe that those who um, who dissent from the the you know LGBT rights, the the basic uh, what has now become the majority opinion, um, the people who believe that they are enemies of of the state and enemies of society and bad people, heretics need to be suppressed. They're the ones who who are running the media, who are running academia, who are running human rights, uh, human resources departments in corporations. This is why it's so alarming to us, because, um, you know, what counts as rational to the people who are power holders in this society suddenly does not include people like me, church people. Well, you have a line that I, I want to draw out here because I think it gets to this point, and I think it's behind some of the Amari French fight, and and, and I, 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 it's almost why I wanted to have you on the show because I want, to, I want this experience to be understood, even if it seems strange to some of my, some of my audience. But you're right. Um, professing Orthodox biblical Christianity on sexual matters was now thought to be evidence of intolerable bigotry. And to draw this out for a minute, it seems to me something that is threaded through your work is an idea that we have a society that prides itself on being built around tolerance. But one of the things it is increasingly intolerant of is orthodox interpretations of Christianity. And so when when Christian thinkers like Amari 
um, begin to argue that there should be an abandonment of pluralistic, classically liberal traditions, that this is part of what is motivating it, a feeling that we are no longer pluralistic and classically liberal for people who are Christian who don't want to argue within a, a sort of like – like cross-cultural dimension. If, if your argument can't cross into a culture of people who don't believe in the Bible, then it has to get translated into something it can. It gets translated into bigotry, and then you're sort of written out of the conversation. That seems to me to be how it feels, but I, I don't want to just intuit this. Like, I'd like to hear it from your, I'd like to hear that experience from your perspective. No, I, I think you've, you've stated it well. Um, you know, we you can expect people who don't see the Bible or the Roman Catholic Church or whatever as uh, as a as an authority. You can't expect them to agree with that authority and agree that society should be ordered by that authority. At the same time, we do live in a pluralistic society in which, um, if you're going to claim that people who who cite uh, the scriptures, uh, uh, the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Bible, uh, the Quran, etc., are by that fact written out of the conversation and and are not to be taken seriously then you're going to have to end up suppressing a lot of people and i think that this is the, well let me back up a little bit around the year 2000 there was an interesting study by two professors at baruch college who were set out to find out why it was that journalists in america mainstream journalists in the, the major uh, newspapers and networks why they were able to see the rise of the religious rights influence in the Republican Party from 1980 onward, but completely missed the rise of the secular left in the Democratic Party. And uh, these two professors showed that um, they, they did an analysis of things in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the major networks, et cetera, and showed that there was a lot of writing about the religious right, but almost nothing about the, the concomitant rise of the, of the secular left. Their view was that newsrooms were so far uh, on the secular left that they literally couldn't see what was in front of their eyes because they didn't know anybody else who believed otherwise. They thought that they were that that their secular left views were normative, um, when in fact they weren't in this culture. I think that uh, the reason I care so much about the media is because the media do set a um, set the the framework for discussion here, and there's. Uh, almost uh, you never see or very rarely see people like me, people like Saurabh Amari um, and others like that taken seriously in the media. Uh, we, we are almost always written about as problematic. Now, I don't expect the New York Times to to take my side on anything, but um, I, it, it troubles me a great deal when I see that the Times, which uh, you know, I'm a subscriber, and I know the Times sets the agenda for the networks and for a lot of broadcast media. When I see them treating people like me and writing about people like us as complete uh, as menaces, it really does feel that uh, that we are being demonized and and pushed to the side in in a way that that is harmful, and we're being pushed out of the public square. I'm you're probably aware I'm working on a book now that is about the rise of what I consider to be soft totalitarianism in in our societies, in the liberal democracies. Um, I have been hearing for the past few years from people who live here in the US and in the UK uh, who grew up in communist Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union who are starting to become alarmed because they're seeing some of the things that they grew up with and that they ran away from 
uh, emerging here in liberal democracy. And I asked him, what, what are you talking about in particular? And it's almost always the suppression of free speech and free thought, usually in academia. A lot of these people are academics. And they say that uh, you cannot get Americans to take this seriously. Well, I tell you, I, I've been traveling this summer uh, to Eastern Europe to interview people who were dissidents in, in that time. I mean, these are people who are liberals, classical liberals, and uh, they're seeing it. And the things they talk about really alarm me. But the ones who, who live here in this country, they're, they're, they're pretty despairing. They say you can't get Americans to believe that this is actually could happen here. I want to put a um, bracket around the self-totalitarianism. I do read some of the, your your stuff on this, and I find it really, uh, to be honest, really frustrating. Um, but I want to—I I don't want to go there quite yet, or it might be better for us to go with the book. But because I want to draw out something else you're saying that I do think is—I want to validate this part. My impression—I've been in a lot of newsrooms. I know people in other newsrooms. I think I have a pretty good idea of the culture of elite media, um, mainstream media, left of center media, uh, et cetera, and. I think it is wrong to say the media is liberally biased, at least in the way people mean when they say that. But what it very much is is cosmopolitanly biased. Mm -hmm. um, the media doesn't really believe in single-payer health care. Right. They do right. not believe in you know a, a particular approach to deficits. They, they think all those things are very arguable. They're not um, – you know, the media does not write people out of the conversation for wanting to cut Medicaid. It's just not how it goes. And in fact, there's often, I think, a, a really a real effort uh, to, to achieve some balance and take those people seriously. But there are a set of values that I think folks in the media don't really consider arguable. Um, and those do have to do, at least in a professed way, with racial equality, with uh, gay equality, with LGBT rights. Um, immigrants, I think that – I think something about Donald Trump in general is that he violates more of these um, kind of the things the media believes to just be fundamental values as opposed to sort of political positions um, in the way he talks about people from outside, uh, in the way he talks about um, – in the way he like mocked the disabled reporter. I mean there's a lot of things there. And so I do think it's always worth noting – and this goes back to some of the conversation we were having earlier. People are much more willing to argue out things that are framed in a uh, like an empirical way, you know, is this a good policy because it will do something for the economy, then there are things that are sort of their idea of you're not a good person if you don't believe this. And I, I want to say we all have them, right? The debate in this is not whether or not there should be these things. Um, you know, another view the media has is Nazis are bad. And I think you also believe Nazis are bad. <laughs> and yeah. so, as a matter of fact, I do. Right. And so there's an there's an agreement there that there are things that the the media shouldn't just be so open minded its head its brain falls out, right? The idea is not that you shouldn't have some like some cuts of the line about what is acceptable and what is not. But I, I do think that there is a very real way in which the media is – it's quite secular and it's quite cosmopolitan and it reflects that in a way that it doesn't reflect being an economic liberal or um, a uh, you know a foreign policy non-interventionist, something – there, there's a set of – I would almost say like policy debates. The media is whatever people believe they're quite open on and then a set of kind of values debates around sort of equality dimensions. That people, um, you know, and I'm and I'm one of this, and I'm not I'm not arguing for changing it. I am just saying that I think it is uh -huh. true that people do not want to give ground on. Yeah, no, I mean it's and not only do they not want to give ground, they don't understand why anyone would challenge them, except from except in bad faith. That has been my experience on abortion, 
on sexuality. And I, I haven't been in a newsroom since immigration became such a huge thing. But, you know, come to think of it, when I was in Dallas, uh, working at the Dallas Morning News from 2003 to 2009, I was on the editorial board. And um, I, I can remember really frustrating meetings we would have where we would talk about immigration, which is, of course, a big deal in Texas. And uh, I, I would think about how None of us on the editorial board, some were more or less sort of business Republican conservatives, others were liberal. But on immigration, we were very much uh, as a board uh, in favor of uh, comprehensive immigration reform, more immigration, et cetera. It struck me one day that not one of us there, even though you know, we were black, white, Hispanic on the board, every one of us were middle class people whose kids went to uh, good schools, either private schools or public schools that weren't overrun with the children of, of immigrants who arrived in the middle of the year speaking no English and that the school had to accommodate them. None of us had to use the public hospital, Parkland in Dallas, which our own newspaper was writing about were com was completely overwhelmed by healthcare for uh, illegal immigrants. None of us actually interacted with people, again, white, black, and, and Hispanic, native-born Hispanic, who had to deal with that. So we just assumed a lot of it, it was just the operating assumption that people who were against immigration, that there had to be at some level bigotry there. And there, no doubt there was. But um, it's just, it frustrated me to no end that the, the blindness that we had, that was frankly class blindness. And uh, we only ever really interacted with immigrants when they were working on building something for us, uh, working our yard or waiting on us in a restaurant. It's funny. I agree with some of that and not with others. I mean, I'll say, for instance, that in my experience watching these debates play out in newsrooms, um, there's a lot of belief in good faith on both sides of, of the abortion debate. Um, people may not agree with, say, the pro-life side of that debate, um, but they understand why people hold that view. I think that's actually one where people tend to say, look, like I really, really disagree, but I understand that if you thought that, right, if you believe life begins at conception in that way, why you would hold that view and why it would be very central to your politics. Or somewhat similarly in the immigration debate, I mean, I have the opposite frustration with you sometimes in that one. I think that there's a very intense view um, that immigrants should be spoken of well, but in terms of any actual belief or advocacy for what it would take to treat them well, there's almost none. The media is not an open borders uh, thing. There's, I actually think in general, immigration is by far the most confused issue in the positions people actually hold on it, sort of what the – trying to work backwards from what they say about how we should treat people to what they actually believe um, in terms of policy. I think you rarely find a line that is anything close to straight. There's just always a lot of confusion in politics. But I guess one place I'd push on you is that I find that you're very alert to bad faith or um, overheated rhetoric on the left. Mm -hmm. And not so much sort of uh, on the right or even sometimes on your uh, uh, in yourself. Already sometimes writing about somebody like Margaret Renkel and getting very upset about her sort of argument that, you know, we all need to love people if love is going to triumph. And then I'll sort of read you say, if you're the kind of religious or social conservative who thinks there can be a live and let live detente with these people, now is the time to disabuse yourself completely of the fallacy. Uh-huh. And, you know, I could read that and say, well, that really sounds like a call to arms beyond where like Rod and I can have a conversation, which obviously we can. And so I just I always wonder a little bit about everybody's ability to sense not bad faith, but I think from the outside, people's rhetoric looks much more totalizing than it feels to them from the inside. And that's different than a bad faith, good faith distinction. But it's why I, I often kind of um, 
I'm a little bit uh, pulled back from your work on this soft totalitarianism because it it's often describing this world that I look around and I'm more inside the world that you're talking about, I think, than you are. And maybe that means I'm more blinded to it, but it also doesn't seem to describe what I see around me in, in any respect. This sort of like this transgender totalitarianism, um, I still think discrimination against trans people is a much bigger uh, problem than their total domination of American life. And it just there's something here in sort of like the picking up of individual stories and lines that then, you know, when you I try to pace that on to just the world I see and the people I know, it doesn't seem to fit. Well, you know, that's a fair comment to a certain extent, because this is something that I, it always surprises me, even though I've been doing this for a long time, is the way other pe people who don't know me personally read my my work. And look, this is on me. I, I'll make that clear. Uh, I, I feel like, you know, that old Warner Brothers cartoon that where the the sheepdog and the the wolf they they spend the day argue, fighting each other or or trying to outsmart each other, uh, and then they they come to the end of the workday and they both punch out and go off and they're they're friends. That's how I view political arguing. But it's naive and and wrong of me to assume that that's how everybody sees it. Um, and you know I do use really strong language uh, when in fact I'm the guy who just wants to go to the party and. And drink a beer and and have fun talking with people, arguing about it, but not taking it personally. But um, you know, again, that's that's on me. The the language I use. That said, some people said to me that you know they find my book, The Benedict Option, to be too alarmist. Well, Flannery O'Connor said that in a world where people are deaf, you have to shout. She used that as her rationale for speaking or creating characters that were larger than life. I think a similar thing is working with me because I know my audience for for the book is mostly people who are, I mean, sorry, for, in my blog are mostly social and religious conservatives, many of whom really do live in a sort of dream world about what's really happening and where the threats really are. Uh, I'm so frustrated, for example, with a lot of parents, uh, I know religious conservatives who are happy to rail about the you know the liberals attacking conservatives on this that and the other and say we've got to get behind Trump and to defend us meanwhile they're handing their children their little children smartphones with complete internet access to pornography and everything else and i, I just don't see that that disconnect um on the the, the thing you just quoted it has been because i have to deal i've been dealing with this for years with people on the left who genuinely do not see that there can be good faith dissent from their view on LGBT rights. Andrew Sullivan wrote a really interesting column in New York Magazine in which he was talking about um, how, you know, there's this new survey out showing that the number of people in Generation Z who feel comfortable with LGBT folks has gone down. And Andrew said that, you know, he thinks it has something to do with the fact that it's gone beyond lesbians and gays. And now the the whole idea of having to, to embrace 54 genders or you're insufficiently woke, you're some kind of bigot, that's getting a lot of pushback. That's Andrew's theory, mind you. Well, that's that's how it feels to me that there will be no stopping it. Most people I know, most conservatives I know, and I know I'm living in my own little bubble, you know, are perfectly... Um, fun with being around lesbian and gay people. We have lesbian and gay friends and family members, whatever we think about it theologically or morally, you know, 
we have crossed that line to where this is this is what American life is now. But transgenderism is something so different. And the the militancy of it, when even Martina Navratilova, for God's sake, is denounced as a bigot because she worries and vocally worries about the effect of transgender ideology on women in sports. I mean, that is the sort of thing that that makes me come out with lines like, there is no detente with these people. In the Benedict Option, you quote a monk, Brother Ignatius, who is explaining why monks take Christ's words about receiving strangers so seriously. And he says to you, it's a kind of warning. If you want to be welcome in heaven, you'd better welcome people as Christ himself now, even if you don't like it, even if you suffer because of those people. If your life is to seek Christ, this is it. You will find redemption in serving these guests because Christ is coming in them. And in our earlier conversation, I recognize that there are some objections people put about where the Christian right puts its focus, where it seems legalistic. You know, it's like, well, you know, there's this little bit in the Bible, but but it's you know, it's it's not it's not the the core thing. But welcoming the stranger has always seemed to be very core, um, both in Judaism and in, in mm-hmm. Christianity. Yeah. And yet, the Christian right has um, cohered around Donald Trump, and not just the in a kind of instrumental way, but even like someone like Amari who put up uh, in that manifesto, there's a very big part about nationalism and borders. And I've been really struck by, um, for all the individual care that individual Catholic churches and others give to people coming over, the sort of non-radicalism around borders, around immigrants, around what it means to belong. And I'd be curious just to sort of understand that more from your perspective. Yeah, thanks for that question. You know, that's, um, I'm quoting Brother Ignatius, who is a monk, in the Benedictine Monastery in Norcia in central Italy. And I, I write a lot about them in, in that book. Um, Brother Ignatius is talking about the, the core Benedictine or a core Benedictine virtue, which is hospitality. St. Benedict orders his monks to receive the, um, receive the stranger, the pilgrim, quote, as Christ himself. And I think that's generally a, um, a, a principle that Christians ought to live by. But here's something interesting, and that from that monastery, and uh, I'll extrapolate from that into into national borders. Um, as I was talking with Brother Ignatius and the other monks there, they do receive pilgrims, and they receive thousands of them every year there. But they don't open their doors wide and leave the doors open wide. If you want to interact with the monks, you have to come at a certain time because. Uh, in the end, they're going to have to shut their doors so they can continue living out the rule of St. Benedict, which involves a certain amount of this time is given over to prayer, this time is given over to physical labor, this time is given over to study, etc. Uh, the monks said that if we kept the doors open all the time, then we could not be monks. We could not live out our vocation as monks. We could not, in the end, be for the spiritual pilgrims who come here seeking counsel. We couldn't be for them who God intends us to be because we would not have been able to build ourselves up spiritually doing the other parts of the rule. So the door is open there, but the door has to be closed when it interferes with the purpose of the monastery. I think you can say the same thing uh, more generally about a nation, that uh, we should welcome the stranger, welcome the oppressed uh, as a general rule. But at some point you have to you have to draw a line there and close the door when it interferes with or, or compromises what the nation is supposed to be as a community. And I think uh, this is um, 
this is, I, I think, um, a morally uh, a moral question that we have to think about, Christians and otherwise, when we think about what our responsibilities are to to the emigrants. If we open the borders completely, as some of the Catholic bishops uh, clearly want to do, then what's a limiting principle? At what point do we cease to be a nation in a meaningful in a meaningful way if we can't even assimilate these people? Um, there's a, a, and this is a, a really controversial point to end on, but I, I, it occurs to me here that Jean Raspail, the, um, the far-right uh, Frenchman who wrote The Camp of the Saints, that notorious book about uh, a dystopian novel about immigration, uh, somebody sent me recently a quote he said. He said that if we in Europe are going to survive um, the waves and waves of immigration, we're going to have to die to what makes us European. And he's talking about the paradox here of inhumanity. He said that the, the waves of immigration coming out of Africa, this is Raspai, are going to be so great that if we accept them as the European humanitarian tradition teaches us to do, then we're going to cease to be Europe. But if we refuse them, then we will also cease to be Europe because we will have hardened our hearts in a way that compromises our identity. I think that this is uh, Europe is facing it in a much sharper way than we are here in America. But I, that same principle is, I think, at work as we figure out how to deal with immigration here. But to offer one point on that, it, it does seem uh, a bit that there's a distinction I notice in the way these issues get talked about, where on some of the issues of of, of gender or LGBT, there's a sense of, well, look, the 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 teaching is clear, and if the teaching conflicts with modern life. Um, Sorry, like sorry, modern life. Like you just got to go with the teaching, and then it comes to something like immigration or, or or the stranger, and it seems like the teaching is clear. But well, if it conflicts with modern life, you got to make sure. I mean, what is the nation really supposed to be? And you know, all these things have limiting principles, and you know, we got to make sure that we can actually assimilate people properly. That it just seems like there are places where the decision is made that um, there can there can. This is not something that needs to update in terms of modernity and um, other values people hold. And then that there are other places where it's actually it does. Well, look, a living tradition is always dynamic and it's it's always trying to figure out how we live by the ancient principles, how we make them work in the actual real world in, in which we live. Right now, as we're talking, I'm thinking about a friend of mine here in Baton Rouge who is a very conservative Southern Baptist. But when we had the catastrophic flood here in 2016, he took into his home a transgendered couple who had been flooded out and had nowhere else to go. This conservative Southern Baptist said, come to my apartment, I'll give you a bedroom and I'll take care of you until you can find another place to go. And he did it because he's a Christian, not in spite of being Christian, but because he's a Christian. Does he believe that transgenderism is a, a, a sinful condition? Of course he does. But, but he believed that his obligation to them as fellow suffering human beings uh, was the more important thing. Uh, I guess what I would, the point I would leave you with, Ezra, is these two things weren't in his mind in conflict. He had to figure out how he could take his, uh, what he believes to be true as a conservative Southern Baptist and respond to these people who were in desperate need, this transgender couple that was in desperate need. And I, I think that uh, you know, that doesn't require having to completely alter your view of what gender is for and what sex is for, but it does show that uh, you know, when people are hurting, you help them. And uh, this, these are debates that have always been going on in Christianity and in Judaism and, and always will, I think. But uh, if we're not debating from 
a position of uh, you know, with a, a shared authority in in the case of my Southern Baptist friend, Scripture as as taught to the Southern Baptist tradition, then um, it's hard for to even have a conversation about it. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. There's a dynamic that I'm trying to better understand and, in fact, like trying to figure out a good name for. It's a dynamic wherein I think that we tend to make the other side into more of the thing that we say it is. The Democratic Party and immigration. Uh, as of the last debate, and you've written a bit about this, I think the Democratic Party is getting a hell of a lot closer to being a party that is at least de facto arguing for open borders or something extremely close to open borders than was ever true in its history. So the mixture— right, you, you believe this. Right. The mixture of decriminalizing um, border entry, uh, un undocumented border entry, and not deporting anybody who doesn't commit a crime, that's a very, very radical opening of the borders beyond where Barack Obama was. And I mean, you know, if you read Bill Clinton on immigration and his sort of platforms, it's like almost where Donald Trump is. So there's been a fast change in this. And so like why have we gone from Barack Obama, who is very careful— to try to create a structure, like a permission structure for a path to legalization and other things by showing that he was tough on these other parts of it. And certainly, you know, there was that whole fight with um, uh, the congressman, I, I think Wilson, over, you know, the Affordable Care Act didn't give undocumented immigrants access to health care, as you can see by this coming up in the debates. But nevertheless, like somebody yelled, you lie about that. And, and, and again, this was something that Obama was concerned about, um, that, that it would be seen that he was trying to do this. So why did the the party move so far to the left on this? Well, I think in part because Donald Trump arose and in the way he treated people on the border, the way he separated families, the way he dehumanized immigrants, he forced the question a lot more sharply. And in doing that, um, he pushed the Democratic Party a lot more to the left. So the Democratic Party is closer to what Donald Trump has said it is on immigration than it was. Like I think he's actually – created a substantive change in it. Uh -huh. And I think this happens all the time. I think that the um, 
as sides become more extreme, um, as they become more polarized, the other side in responding to that polarization and responding to the values it violates, it too becomes more polarized and, and, and it moves further. And so it isn't just that we misunderstand each other, but that we change each other in, in interesting ways. And I, I see this sometimes. I mean, you, I, I thought it was interesting that you spoke about that Andrew Sullivan piece on the LGBT uh, surveys because I see this in both directions. I mean, there are a lot of surveys about Christianity that say if you ask why are Gen Zers not Christian in the ways that their predecessors were, they'll often say because it's homophobic, because it's intolerant. And, you know, if somebody was reading your site, what they would see is a lot of anger about um, and a lot of concern over gay rights and transgendered rights and, and other things. And so there's this way in which if you're going to go by not wanting people to see you as the other side sees you, you can't constantly be responding to the thing you're you're most upset about. And yet across all kinds of forms of politics and religion and just social debate right now, it seems that we are um, in ways that just keep sort of making the distinctions between everything much sharper and leaving less mm – -hmm. Less, less space for people to think. Yeah, I'm a little bit between these two sides because, like, the between them is just like this giant fall into the abyss. Right. Well, that's that's a fantastic point, and um, I've been writing about uh, cultural and social issues for a long time. That's my that's the thing I, I focus on in my public writing. And in fact, when I, I shut the computer down, I don't think about these sort of things in the same way. But you're right. I I do. I, I am very much on point uh, on, on my writing about the uh, the the threats to religious liberty and to the cultural uh, stability and so forth I see coming from the sexual revolution. I mean, I I, uh, I I used to be asked this a lot when I first started writing this, and still am sometimes. Like, why do you care so much about this? Why? Uh, and, and the answer is, you're we're being made to care. That's Eric Erickson's line. You can't ignore it when the freedom of your religious school is put at risk by uh, lawsuits um, because of the advance of gay rights. You can't ignore it when, um, I'll tell you what story here, a pastor here in Baton Rouge where I live, which is you know pretty much deep Trumplandia, uh, a pastor came to me and said that a, a woman came to him and his congregation and said, I need your help here. My, uh, my middle school daughter has come home and said that she thinks she's a boy. And I went to the to the, it's a public school here in Baton Rouge. The woman said, I went to the guidance counselor to see what's going on with my daughter. And the woman told me quite firmly, uh, you had better accept your son as he is. Well, look, this is a huge thing. And, um, and it's happening even in places far off. This is not lower Manhattan. This is not San Francisco. This is Baton Rouge. And people like that mom are suddenly feel besieged like she has no one to turn to because the institutions that she had trusted, the public schools, suddenly it has gone very far um, to the left on these fundamental matters. And so uh, it's this is not something made up. This is not some bogeyman. This is really happening. I'll say one more thing about that. I, a few years ago, I went to a an evangelical college to give a speech. And uh, I was having dinner with some of the professors, and uh, as I always do, I, I asked them, what are you seeing among, among your students? And we started talking about uh, family, and, or we started talking about pornography. That's where it began with uh, all the, the struggles the, these kids are having. Middle-class white kids at a conservative evangelical college, so many of them were struggling with porn addiction. 
And it went on very quickly to a discussion about how these professors didn't think that most of them would be able to form stable families. I found that to be incredible. I said, but this is a conservative evangelical school. Why wouldn't they be able to form stable families? One of the professors looked at me, Ezra, and he had tears in his eyes, literally, and said, because so many of them have never seen that. Now, this wasn't about homosexuality or transgenderism. This was about the the fragmenting and the disintegration of family systems. And uh, it's you, you can't you can't not be worried about this when people like you and me, you know, chances are we we came from really strong family systems and we're probably would hope that we're reproducing that in our children. But that is not the case for a lot of people, um, white, black, Hispanic in this country. And so when we talk more generally about the sexual revolution and its uh, radical individualism becoming institutionalized in the culture, that's what I'm getting at. The the whole LGBT thing, that's just the tip of the spear. But I think the the sense of breakdown and disintegration is uh, is much broader and preceded the 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 call for LGBT rights. If you read Philip Reef, for example, the late sociologist, he was already talking about this in the 1960s. Well, I think the porn thing is actually really interesting because that's a place where more of the focus was on that um, and less on the sort of the othering of, you know, the the, the LGBT folks or, 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 or like that would that would actually obviate a lot of my concerns here. Right. I mean, the, the stuff that is about something that is in the us as opposed to in the them, I think, has a very different social effect. Something you said a minute ago is interesting and I want to push on it. And I want to say, as I do, I think this is a thing for the entire media, and it's true for me, and it's true for all of us, but but I want to push on it here. You said, look, like, you can't ignore this stuff. You know, it's really happening. And that's true, but it's true for a very wide range of things that we do ignore. <laughs> and so by choosing to focus on anything, we're choosing not to focus on something else. So There's a piece you wrote a, a little while ago that I've just been thinking about as an example of this dynamic. So, and I'm, cause, and it caught my, cause I'm, uh, my father's Brazilian. So I, I pay attention to stuff going on in Brazil mm-hmm. and you wrote about, so Jair Bolsonaro, the right. kind of populist right president of Brazil, he had tweeted, I guess, a video or something of this like small group of, <laughs> I don't exactly know how to describe this. Um, like six performance artists who piss on each other in public <laughs> and he had tweeted out about like what depraved lunatics they were or something. And so then The Guardian had written a piece about these performance artists, sort of quoting them and, you know, kind of portraying them as brave and, you know, like uh, uh, like discriminated against by by Jair Bolsonaro. And you sort of and – and then you came in and said like, I mean, this is ridiculous. The Guardian is now, you know, putting itself on the side of these, you know, degenerates. And the thing that I kept thinking about in this that I think about in so many things is – in this case, we're talking about it because Bolsonaro tweeted them out. Um, but this is something that like nobody should actually be paying that much attention to, that they're not a big social problem, that they're not a big issue, and that mm-hmm. everybody can then, as it, it, it runs through the transmission mechanisms of power from right-wing power from Bolsonaro, and I think it is dangerous for him to single people out given the size of his platform to then sort of more, you know, what feels like left-wing cultural power in The Guardian and then sort of back to like Christian conservative, you know, like now you're pulling it up. And it's like winding everybody up over something that I mean, yeah, it's happened. Like it's a real thing that's happening. The, the, they really are performance artists. But it's just like, what are we doing? Like what? Like this whole <laughs> thing is built to get people pissed. And maybe not the best choice so of words, speak. given the <laughs> given the, the the topic matter. But I, I just think that's something that we all need to 
take a honestly like a little bit more seriously because these things are happening, but we can choose some of them you really need to focus on in sort of any definition uh-huh. of newsworthiness and some of them you don't. And it's just the the degree to which then as we do that, it becomes a a question nobody can ignore. I think about the Covington teens this way too. Like this is just something that whatever happened in that standoff at the National Mall, like no one should have cared about at all. But as it became a thing where the media was weighing in in the way that it was, in the obsessive way that it was, then it was really a question of power. So then it was reasonable for everybody else to weigh in because, well, what the media is doing actually matters. And Donald Trump is over there weighing in. And we're all, now we're all having yeah. a, good old, a good old fight. But there is something about what we decide to focus on that feels really important to me. Yeah, I, I think you're completely right there. And this goes back to the dynamic that you were speaking about a few minutes ago, that we, uh, we're we parasitic on each other and we wind each other up. The, I'm glad you brought up the Covington Catholic uh, thing, though, because I, I can remember I, I was in Dublin when that happened. And the first thing I saw about it was a tweet by the Princeton professor, Robbie George, where he was criticizing uh, these kids for being cruel to this Native American elder. And I I remember I was going to bed when I saw that in Dublin, and I said, when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to write this and go after these kids. Well, by then, the fuller video had come out showing that it wasn't at all what we initially thought. But by then also, the the liberal media, people like Reza Aslan and others had just jumped on these kids and were tearing them apart. To me, that whole thing as it played out was an object lesson in how the mob works because these kids were unsympathetic, you know, white kids from a Southern Catholic school wearing MAGA hats. You know, these aren't the sort of people that I'm necessarily sympathetic to, but um, they just, they were totems. And uh, seeing what happened to them and how quickly they were made into hate figures who went to this national two-minute hate over these kids who had actually done nothing wrong. The only thing wrong they had done was wear MAGA hats, you know, and that's that's something that's not, did not justify the, the pylon. Meanwhile, right now we have the thing that just happened over the weekend to Andy No in, um, in Portland, you know, the, the journalist who has made a habit of covering Antifa and, and writing about the things that they do. Well, as your listeners no doubt know, they, they attacked him, they put him in the hospital with a bleeding brain. And um, it's just, it's interesting to think about what would have happened. You know, we haven't heard a lot from the media about this. At least I haven't seen the sort of um, the the liberal media rising up to condemn this. Some people have, but uh, it hasn't been remotely like what happened with Covington Catholic. You know, what would have happened if uh, if some, uh, the Proud Boys, the, the alt-right people, had thrown cement milkshakes onto a CNN reporter, a reporter from Slater for Vox? You know, would we have seen the same sort of failure to get upset about it? I, I don't think so. I mean, do, am, am I wrong here? So I don't know. So I'm not super familiar with the actual um, topic here. Oh, okay. um, but but I saw something about it, and I think you're right. Look, like if it, if it's if if that is the story, right? Where I think he's a reporter for Quillette. Am I right about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a, um, like a gay libertarian journalist, and he was beaten. Like that's a that's a truly horrible thing. Um, but I think this is this is getting a little bit into the thing that that I'm hitting here too, which is that there's a funny thing now in the media and in all of us who are in the media where it's like what really catches fire on Twitter becomes the thing that becomes at least one of the shortcuts to the assignment. So something I think a lot about with the Covington teens is that I think before Twitter that never becomes a story. I'll tell you, I had a very weird experience of that one, um, and I haven't—I don't think I've talked about this because it's just like such a weird. <laughs> it just makes me sound so like Bay Area, bizarre. 
But I was actually at a meditation retreat when that happened. And, you know, the thing you're trying to do— and, You and Marianne Williamson? Me and Marianne. Um, the, thing, <laughs> the thing you're trying to do at a silent meditation retreat is not think about politics. And one of the teachers brought up in like one of like my like very rare um, uh, non-silent moments in that, like kind of mentioned that this thing was happening. And initially I was like, wait, what is happening? Is this like, is there some kind of like riot on the mall? And then like, I kind of like asked, they brought it up to me and and I, I quickly realized it was not something for me to be thinking about there and then. And it wasn't some, you know, unbelievably huge um, political issue. But then when I got, so I got out a couple days after all this had, had kind of like spread like brush fire and like burnt through the forest behind it. And it was just so bizarre. Um, it was just clearly something that had erupted on a weekend on Twitter and that everybody felt they had to write about it. And then in writing about it, everybody created more things to write about. And we just like burnt ourselves out. And then everybody's just sitting around angry. This is like a, a slightly different obsession of mine that we need a better definition of newsworthiness that we stick to a little bit better because the the story you're talking about with Andy No, like, yeah, there you go. And then it's like, well, what if that happened to Vox? And it was Proud Boys and it was – and because we don't have a really good way of being transparent about why we cover what we cover, right? there's just this constant feeling of – well, you're covering this and not that. And like that is the essential bias. Yeah. And that is the essential value judgment. And that is the essential moment when you're saying that the terrible things that happened to my people or at least the people I care about are not worth as much as the, as the terrible things that happened to other people. Right? Because like I could then say like, you know, <laughs> what about kids dying of malaria? And I mean, you can kind of keep going up sure, in this sure. escalating way, which it's very hard to come up with these answers. But I do think so much of our um, – I think a lot of our enmity – is that we choose to focus on the things that make us angriest at each other. And then in doing that, we actually become more of the people that we're angry at. Like it actually does change us. It's not a it's not a pure illusion. Right. And I don't really know what to do about it. And I'm certain and I'm certain that I'm sometimes part of it. Um, but it it seems to me something that is a more fundamental difference between doing being a journalist in the social media age and being a journalist before the age of social media and one that we have not as a profession come up with any clear standards or guidance for managing. Oh, I don't think that it's – I think you're absolutely right there, but I, don't, I can't imagine how how we could do that. I, I think that what happens is we see consumers of social media see that the – Washington Post and mainstream media went berserk about the Covington Catholic kids on that weekend uh, when the video came out. Even before the full video had come out, there were stories being written about it. Attention was being paid by the by the leading media, so it became a story. Meanwhile, Andy No, it's not yet a story. It may be by the time this podcast airs, maybe they will have picked this up, but it's just it's striking to see the comparison between the two. And of course, this sort of thing makes people like me say, see, see, we were right. We were right. And it's you're right. You get part of this. But can, I, can this, I push this. the other side of this for a sec? Because the, the thing that always comes up for me in this is the campus political correctness wars, uh-huh. which like that's the ultimate for people on my side of this debate. Like what? Like you care about what and why? And where are you when people get fired for trying to unionize? And where are you when, um, you know, the the kind of long arm of the state actually reaches out 
and hammers people for speaking in a way, you know, against their corporation and they get or ag gag laws where you can't actually show what is happening in factory farms. Like, where is all your concern for free speech then when it's not just somebody who's being protested on a campus who you happen to agree with Mm -hmm. or think that you could be in their position? My point is not actually to like debate that point so much as to say that it's a notable thing to me in in the political wars right now that I think there are really deep grievances of this kind on all sides. Like you cover this and not that and that proves, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? You care about this and it's always been true, right? I mean that's – we started this talking a bit about you know, something that, that I feel when I sometimes read writing from folks on, on your side of the aisle. Like why so much concern about um, sex and not poverty? But there's just something in in the moral frameworks here and in the the sort of dynamics of of media coverage and audience generation that seems to me to make all this stuff a lot uh, angrier. Well, that's true. And I know we're coming to the end of our time here, but I want to make make a point about why the campus stuff matters so much to at least some of us. Um, it's because elite colleges are the training ground for the next generation of elites that will move throughout the um the the into leadership positions in business and culture uh, i was up in at harvard earlier this year and i met with a, a friend of mine who was a, a foreigner um, who's studying there uh, doing some advanced coursework and i asked him what he's learned about his time there he said to him the most he, this guy's european he said the most important thing he learned was to observing how the american elite are preparing the next generation so well, what are you talking about? He said, and he started talking about how there were so many things that you just couldn't talk about in these classrooms because they would trigger people, they would offend people. And uh, he gave me gave me specific examples, which I couldn't write about because I didn't want to out who this person is. But he said, you know, we Europeans who are here in the program, most of us are on the left, and we were shocked by how much you couldn't talk about and how the professors were were changing the curriculum to fit the the needs or the the these these neurotic students and this guy went on to tell me he goes that you know it's pretty scary to me to think about the when america when when the leadership of of america the instant american institutions passes to these people because they have no idea how to defend their own position they feel that if they're made anxious by something then it is wrong and has to be smashed at once and gotten out of the way this guy said that these are kids at Harvard. This is not like, you know, uh, um, Bug Tussle State. This is Harvard. And this is why the when PC takes over and institutions like Harvard, that's why I think it's a really big thing because 20, 30 years down the line, these are going to be the people making hiring decisions at major corporations, uh, making news decisions in, in newsrooms and so on and so forth. So I obviously have a lot of thoughts on that, but I don't want to, because as you say, we only have so much time, I don't want to go fully down that path. Though I would encourage people for a longer discussion of sort of exactly these issues. My podcast with John Haidt is very much on these points. But there's something I wanted to ask you or make sure I ask you before before you left, which gets a little bit back to these questions of pluralism and, and how these debates take place, which is if you didn't believe Christianity was true, if you just weren't Christian, if it, or it was somehow proven to you tomorrow that it's not true, mm-hmm. how different would your view of how humans should live be? Like how much of this is instrumental that Christianity matches your view of what is the right way to live and, and, and how society should be ordered and how much of it truly is uh, a function of a, of a belief in divine revelation? Oh, that's a great question, Ezra. I, I think it wouldn't change it much more because I'm a conservative, I'm a social conservative, 
I believe in tradition. I believe that before we get rid of forms that have served us well, like the traditional family or the nuclear family, we, uh, we should be very reticent to do that because we don't know what's on the other side of that. I think the idea of transgenderism, mainstreaming transgenderism, we're ready to get into our laws and so on and so forth. I think that I would be equally uh, uh, anxious about that uh, and fearful of that if I had no religious beliefs at all, simply because it is something that has never been done before. So this is my, my, my deep-seated conserva philosophical conservatism and social conservatism there. Uh, it's hard for me to separate that in my own, in my actual thinking from my Christian convictions, but uh, I have most of my European friends are who are conservative. There are some over there. They're not religious at all, but they their conservatism comes out of a matter of tradition, more of a Burkean sort of thing. And uh, they have this natural disposition uh, against change. Um, and so I think that would be, that's where I would be, uh, but I probably wouldn't be as, um, as intense about it because I actually do believe Christianity is true. And I'm seeing, I see that we live in a post-Christian culture. And the, the thing that concerns me more than anything else is whether or not the faith survives um, into the, the my children's generation and the generation after that. Not whether or not America is a Christian country or Christians have political power, but whether the faith itself survives. And um, I, I don't write a religious blog. I write about religious issues a lot on, on my blog. Uh, because, but I'm writing for the American Conservative Magazine, so um, you know I don't want to make it an apologetics blog. But that is ultimately the thing that concerns me more than anything else is the future of the Christian religion. Insofar as it intersects with society, culture, and politics, I will write about it. But uh, the thing that bothers me the most is not the thing that uh, I spend most of my time writing about because it just doesn't seem appropriate for for the format in, in that magazine. Do you really do you really think there's a chance Christianity as you as you understand it doesn't survive? Absolutely. Oh yeah. I mean look at Europe now. If you have spent any time among Christian communities in Europe, you can see that uh, Christianity there is is barely even an afterthought for for most people. Um, I think it'll take longer to to kick in here, but uh, uh, I wrote about this in the Benedict Option. Some of the most recent surveys or the most recent uh, social uh, sociological studies of it show that Americans are now on the same downward path in terms of Christian belief and practice as um, as Europe. So uh, I don't believe I'll live to see the end of it, but I believe that my grandchildren will, unless something unexpected happens, will live to see the the uh, disappearance or near functional disappearance of Christianity. Christianity means little to nothing to European public life. Um, and I think it, we're definitely headed that way. That's why I wrote the Benedict option to, it's not about how we can regain political power. In fact, I've gotten a lot of criticism from people on the right, religious right, for saying that political power is not the most important thing. And we ought to be focusing more on strengthening our communities in terms of education, in terms of uh, more disciplined, spiritually disciplined living to ride this thing out. But um, I'm only concerned about politics, uh, or mostly concerned about politics insofar as it makes it more difficult for our Christian, Orthodox Christian institutions to do that, to form Christian communities. But mostly, um, politics is not the most important thing facing um, the having to do with the survival of Christianity. 
So um, I really appreciate you having been here and taking all this time and, and, and talking through these with me and letting me ask a bunch of questions about issues that are, are, are deep for you. Um, so let me now ask you the question we used to end the podcast, which is what are three books you've read that have influenced you that have changed how you think that you would recommend to the audience? Oh, oh, wow. That's, um, that's a great question. I think one of the most important books for me uh, was Thomas Merton's uh, autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, which came out in uh, in the 1940s. It was his it was his book about how he went from being a sort of you know, non-believing, free spirit aesthete into becoming a Trappist monk. And uh, I, I read that when I was in college in the 1980s, and it really really turned me around and made me think about uh, about my own life and the spiritual possibilities in my life in a different way. Um, and I think the seed uh, of my interest in monasticism was planted right there and going on this journey with Thomas Merton, who's a fantastic writer. And he he makes you understand how, you can, how a man can go from being completely worldly into being uh, not only a monk, but part of the most austere, one of the most austere Catholic orders. So The Seven Story Mountain is just a fantastic book. A, a book I talk about a lot in my writing that uh, I call it The Fifth Gospel is A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. It, uh, everybody has read that at some point, but it's the, the sort of picaresque novel about a, a crazy person, Ignatius Riley, living in New Orleans. He's a medievalist. He's in a violent revolt against the modern world. Um, I, uh, I suggest that because to me, it, it, I, I see myself in Ignatius sometimes, you know, uh, rattling on, shaking my fist at, at the, the modern world from a more or less medieval point of view. But I actually being a figure of fun. I try to laugh at myself in that way and seeing myself as Ignatius. It's the great uh, New Orleans novel, and I, I recommend people people read it and to not take themselves quite so seriously. But there's um, another book, too, that I mean, I, the third one, I, there's so many I could pull out, but um, I would like to talk about Laurus, L-A-U-R-U-S. It's a, a novel that came out a few years ago by a Russian writer named Evgeny Vodolaskin. It's a novel about the Middle Ages in Russia, and it's about the, the title character is a holy man who he's just an ordinary man, but he he uh, is responsible early in his life for the death of someone who was dear to him, and he spends his entire life on a pilgrimage that becomes a religious pilgrimage to atone for for the death he caused, and it's just a fantastic novel. It's kind of like Russian magic realism about um, religion and society and things as deep as the nature of time. I read that novel several times. I recommend it to everybody, Laris. And um, uh, Vodolaskin is a modern writer. He's, a, he's actually a philologist who works in St. Petersburg and who spends most of his time with his head in the Russian Middle Ages. Um, and he wrote a, a novel, a contemporary fiction based in that. And it's it's a wonder, this novel. I, I, I get something out of it every time I read it. Roger, thank you very much. Ezra, thank you for having me. So thank you to Roger. That is a conversation. Uh, quick before we go, as I mentioned earlier, I am I'm looking for a name for this dynamic, this dynamic in which we end up making the other side into the thing that we think it is by making them respond to, to, to this critique of the thing we think they are. Uh, I, I, I think it's important. I really do. I'm, I'm trying to explore it more in my work, trying to explore it more in my book. But if you have a great name for it, 
this sort of world in which you become what the other side says you are by responding to them and by having to kind of answer that charge. Uh, I would love to hear it at Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. Again, Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com, because we all know the most important thing about any kind of analysis is naming something so other people can argue about it <laughs> more easily. Um, thank you again to Roger for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here and, and sitting through the, the whole podcast. Um, thank you to Ernie Indredet for engineering, to my producer, Jeff Geld, for producing The Ezra Klein Show. Is a Vox Media podcast production. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.